0: As we continue in our study of this gospel, it's been a wonderful journey. It is such a rich uh, section of scripture that we are in right now that is very practical. And today we're going to be talking about the Lord's coming and being ready for that. I'd like to read this passage of scripture for us. It's Luke 12 verses 35 to 48. Jesus said, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. And it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants, to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text this morning, there are some things here that are maybe difficult for us to understand. We have questions and other things are obvious the whole point of being ready for your coming. And so today I pray that you would help us to understand what that means and how we should live in light of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Arnold T. Olson was the second president of the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, He served in that role from 1952 to 1976 and he loved biblical prophecy. He was a scholar, an expert in that area. In fact, there were times when he met with some of Israel's leaders, like Golda Meir and others, when they wanted to know what is it that Christians, in particular evangelicals, believe about the return of Christ and about Israel's role in that. And so there would be opportunities that he would talk with them. And he wrote these words that I think are a good balance when we think about the coming of Christ. He said, Ever since the first days of the Christian church, evangelicals have been looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. They may have disagreed as to its timing and to the events on the eschatological calendar, They may have differed as to a pre-tribulational or a post-tribulational rapture. They may have disagreed in terms of whether it will be a pre- or post- or millennial coming. They may have been divided as to a literal rebirth of Israel. However, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings, who will someday make the kingdoms of this world his very own. Dr. Olson was acknowledging that there are times when Christians, when we study the scripture, may see things differently concerning the return of Christ. And it is true that we don't know exactly what is going to happen in all of these areas. We have convictions as we study that. But the one thing that we all do agree upon is that Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will make the kingdoms of this world his very own. The return of Christ is a frequent topic in the New Testament. Out of 260 chapters in the New Testament, the return of Christ is mentioned 318 times. That's that's more than once a chapter. Jesus spoke often of his return. He would tell the disciples in John fourteen one to 6, that in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I will come again one day, and I will take you to be with me. It's a promise that he has made to all believers. Paul would talk about the coming of Christ. He said that our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior who is coming from there and who will transform this lowly body into a body just like his. He wrote in First Thessalonians 4 that he did not want us to be ignorant about the coming of the Lord, but to understand that that day will come like a thief in the night, that Jesus Christ will return, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Peter would talk about the return of Christ and call it our living hope. John would write about the return of Christ in the Revelation and he would talk about this one who is coming soon and he would say "Maranatha, let him come soon." Paul called his return our blessed hope in Titus 2:13. It's the thing that we are all looking forward. To. It's it's on our calendars. This day is going to come. We don't know exactly when. But Jesus Christ is going to return, and that is something that gives us great hope. The return of Christ fills our heart with that hope and expectation. And the return of Christ is also a motivation for godly living. It's what spurs us on. It's what encourages us to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord because we want to be ready when he comes. We don't want to be caught unaware. We don't want to be taken by surprise, but we want to be living in a way that is pleasing to him. So today I'd like us to think about what that means. What does it mean to be ready? What does that call for from each of us? Well, there are three things that I see in this text that I want to bring out for us this morning. Number one, being ready calls for faithful service. Faithful service. We see that in verses 35 to 38. Watching and waiting for the Lord's return is not something that is passive. It's not just kind of sitting back in your easy chair and going, Okay, I guess he's coming. We're just going to wait for that day and, you know, kind of sit around and do nothing. No. Waiting for the Lord's return calls for active service. And we see that in these verses here. He tells us that we are to be dressed, ready for service. And literally that phrase means to to gird up your loins. It was an expression that was used back then. Uh, For a soldier, it meant tucking your outer robe into your belt, if you will, so you could be ready for battle. If you were going to work as a servant in a house, it meant that you were tucking in that robe so that you could be free to work and unencumbered by that. And it was something also that pilgrims would do when they went on a journey, to travel more easily, to move more quickly. And so he tells us to be ready for service. Every day until he comes. And he also tells us that we should keep our lamps burning. To be constantly alert because we don't know when our Lord is going to return. And even some have suggested that this phrase when Jesus says it would be good to keep those lamps lamps burning. So whether it's in the second or third watch of the night you will be ready. Ready. There's a suggestion there that his coming may be delayed, that it may be later than people had expected initially. And so we wait, we watch, and we are ready. He gives us an example in verse 36 of what that is like. It's like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. They don't know when he's coming. They know he is coming. So they keep the lights on. And they are watching and waiting so that when he returns, they can open the door for him immediately. You know, in our world, and when we think about servants or we think about slavery, we have a pretty negative impression of that because of the African-American slavery that took place prior to the Civil War. And that kind of colors what we think about this. And so when I was thinking about an image that perhaps is a little bit better or more like what took place in the New Testament where they had household servants, perhaps a better picture would be something like the recent TV series Downton Abbey, where many of you probably watched that and you saw in this British household that was a noble family, they had servants who took care of the household chores. It was their employment, their work, if you will, But they were there to do whatever the family asked of them. If the family went away, they were supposed to be ready, uh, waiting for their return. Sometimes they traveled with them on their trips and took care of their needs. And you also got a picture there of how some of those servants were loyal. They were trustworthy. They were like part of the family. They were faithful in what they did. You had Carson the butler or Bates the valet. Or Anna, the personal mate, who took care of the needs of those that they were working for. They were good stewards that could be relied upon to do things well. But there were others who chafed in that role, and they could be deceitful or disloyal, Uh, You had Thomas, who was always kind of scheming behind the scenes, and O'Brien, who was another woman who was scheming and kind of trying to play things to her advantage in some way. But what you saw is that those who were faithful were well cared for and rewarded. And those who were not were either dismissed or disciplined because of what they have done. So it will be when Jesus returns. In verse 37, he says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. And then he says something that is just striking. I mean, I want you to hear it again. He says, I tell you the truth. Okay, he's he's saying this as strong as I can. I tell you the truth. Listen up. That he, the master, will dress himself to serve and will have them the servants recline at the table and he will come and wait on them now that's something we didn't expect to see that'd be like Lord Grantham when he came home waiting upon the servants at Downton Abbey and saying hey let me serve you and fix this meal and take care of these needs but here it is the Lord Jesus who was saying that to his disciples and to us. How would you feel if Jesus took off his outer garment and washed your feet? I, I mean, I have a feeling that some of us would respond just like Peter did. We'd be going, no, no Lord, no, I, I don't deserve that, Lord. Lord Jesus, it's me who should wash your feet. And Jesus says, No, I want to do this for you. It's what Jesus did in the upper room in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. And it's what he may do at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in that great celebration that is yet to come. But it is Jesus who will throw the feast and who will welcome his bride, the church. And that is going to be a joyous celebration when we all gather there with him. There will be food and there will be laughter. There will be joy. There will be this fellowship that we enjoy together. And it is Jesus who is the host and invites us to come to his feast. Being ready for his coming calls for wisdom. Every day it calls for us to make good choices about how we spend our time, the things that we do with the gifts that we have been given, how we care and treat the people around us, and how we honor and serve Jesus Christ. Here Jesus uses the example of a wise homeowner who wants to protect his Property. We see that in verses thirty-nine and forty, and he shares that example that if the owner of a house knew at what hour a thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. You see, the trouble with thieves is you don't know when they will strike, and so you have to be ready all the time. You take prudent steps, you lock the doors, maybe you install an alarm, maybe you have a camera on your property. You build good relationships with your neighbors. You watch out for one another. You have kind of this this neighborhood where people care for each other and they take notice of one another's property. When I think about what's going on today with the internet and internet security, you have to be constantly vigilant passwords, filters, don't open emails that have attachments that you don't recognize or that look suspicious. There are criminals with cyber activity that are trying to take your stuff any way that they can. And we live in that kind of world where we need to be constantly ready. Now, the coming of Christ is not something that anyone should dread. This is a good thing, But in that same way, we need to be ready for His coming because it will be sudden and it will be unexpected. So be ready. There was recent discussion about a date in September when people thought, well, maybe this is going to be it when the Lord comes. And I I saw one person posted, well, that's one day we know He's not going to (laughs) come. You know, if, if he tells us it's going to be sudden and unexpected, it's not going to be a particular date that we set. We are to live ready. Walk with God every day. Confess your sin. Be honest and open with him. Turn from it. Not hiding anything so that when he comes, you won't be ashamed. Live your life going about your work, taking care of your family. Serving in the church. Be faithful in your marriage. Love your children. Love one another. You see, it's not like we have to do something extraordinary here to be ready. No, it's living our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. It's doing the things that we should be doing, going about our life in that way. And you will be ready when He comes. Be wise make good choices the world and the devil will try their hardest to get you to go off track they're going to try and get you to adopt their values and not God's you know we see that in many ways it is the temptation to sin that can be quite blatant and in your faith or it can be subtle things that come up that just kind of get us to want to be comfortable and settle in and just enjoy all the things in this world and not put God first in our life. For example, the average American watches TV for nearly 30 hours a week. If you took how many commercials you watched in that time, it would be quite shocking 30 hours a week adds up to 65 days of non-stop TV watching every year. By the time a high school student graduates, students will have viewed 360,000 commercials. The average 65-year-old will have watched 2 million commercials. Each of these commercials has been created by smart people who pack their ads with powerful images, catchy music and humor, and memorable slogans. And most of these commercials have a primary theme. This product will give you true happiness and deep satisfaction. You know, just buy this thing and you'll be happy. So one person uh, took that in kind of a creative way based on the worldview presented by TV commercials. uh, This is how they rewrote some of the Beatitudes of Jesus. He said, blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands, where they lie in chase lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies and highly attractive, socially gifted women in the first half of life, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. And blessed are those who have outstanding kids. Verily, I say to you, highly blessed are those who have a golden Labrador retriever bounding along on that slow-motion video day of playing with the kids in the park, for they shall be the envy of real families everywhere and they shall be satisfied. You get these images that the world says that if you have this, do this, buy this, this is what's going to bring ultimate happiness. And Jesus comes along, as we saw last Sunday in the message, and he tells us that life is more than food and clothing. He tells us the pagans run after all such things, but seek his kingdom. Put God first in your life, and these things will be given to you as well. He will take care of our daily needs. The most important thing we can do is to put him first and follow his will for our life. So choose wisely how you spend your time and money. Choose your friends wisely. Do they encourage you in your relationship with God, or do they pull you back and pull you away from Christ? love God, love people, stay in his word, be a people of prayer, and use your gifts in a way that will honor him. And thirdly, being ready calls for obedience. And we see that in verses 41 to 48. Who is this parable for? Peter asked. Is it for us or for the crowds? And from what Jesus tells us in the story that follows, it really is a parable for the disciples and for all who would follow Jesus. The description here is of a large household where one of the servants is made a manager. He's a steward over the rest of the servants. Or to take the analogy of Downton Abbey, he's Carson the butler who's over all the other servants in that household. The reward for faithful service here is not idleness. You know, it's not you do a good job and then we're going to set you up where you can rest and everybody else is going to wait on you. No, the reward for faithful service in God's kingdom is even greater service. Greater opportunities to serve him. We see that in verse 44 where he talks about that. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions, this one who has served well. We see it in Luke 19, in the parable of the ten minas, where each one had been given a a mina to put to work, and had been given this treasure, proportionate. And this one who had been given ten minas put them to work and was faithful. And Jesus says to him, take charge over ten cities in the eternal kingdom. Now, I don't know exactly what all of that is going to be like in heaven, but we get this picture that those who have served well in this life, who have been faithful with what they have been given, will be given even greater responsibility here and in heaven, that God rewards faithfulness. Those who are unfaithful stewards will be punished. And he talks about three levels of punishment here, kind of taking what would happen back in those days. And so we can't, we can't take this and apply this like directly to what is going on today here with us. But there is a definite point that comes out of this. In verses 45 to 48, he talks about these three levels of punishment. And he tells us that this unfaithful steward who thought, hey, my master's gone a long time, and so I'm just going to live life as I please, and he begins to beat the other men servants and maid servants and eat and drink and get drunk? When the master returns, what will he do? He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. It's a picture of what will happen to those who reject Christ who really don't know him maybe it appeared that they did but they don't and they will be assigned a place with the unbelievers outside of the kingdom the one who knows his master's will verse 47 and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows a second level of punishment here if you will that the one who knows the right thing to do, knows what God wants us to do, but just doesn't want to do it, there will be a loss of reward. And the third category is the one who doesn't know, but does things deserving of punishment, will be beaten with few blows. Sin is still sin, even if we are ignorant. Ignorant. When I look at these three things, and I think about that judgment that is to come for believers, a judgment for believers is not punishment. All our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it still does matter how we live in this life, and there are consequences for the choices that we make. And I really think the overriding point of what Jesus is saying here is that God's reward and punishment are just. And it will be based on our faithfulness and obedience. There's going to be a day that will come when He'll look at our life. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about um, how God's going to examine each one's work to see whether it was wood, hay, and stubble or was it gold and silver and precious gems that we built with. Will it last? Will it stand the day? In the Lord of the Rings... J.R.R. R. Tolkien wrote about a kingdom that was called Gondor. And Gondor for many years had been without a king. And while they were waiting for the rightful heir to return to his throne, there were stewards who were put in charge of that kingdom. And in the book, at the time of that writing, the steward is a man named Denethor. And he has two sons, Boromir and Faramir, both of whom... Uh, figure prominently in the story. The movie kind of casts Farmer in a little more suspicious light than in the book. In the book, he really is a very noble figure. And here you have Denethor, who has this power of the king, but he doesn't have the title. And he is supposed to take care of the kingdom. And he's supposed to do everything he can to preserve the kingdom, to hold it together, to make good decisions for the people. So that when the king returns, he can hand over the kingdom to him. There is a daily reminder that he is not the king and never will be the king. In that in that throne room, you have the throne that is awaiting the king's arrival. And he is never to sit on that Instead, there is another chair that is assigned for him as a steward where he sits as a servant. But Denethor didn't like that. He was not a very good steward. He dreaded the day the king would return, for he knew that with the return of the king would come his own return to obscurity. And he jealously guarded that power that had been given to him. His attitude was reflected when he said the lord of Gondor is not to be made a tool of other men's purposes however worthy. To him there was no higher purpose than holding on to what he had in that kingdom of Gondor and to rule it. The rule of Gondor is mine and no man no other man's. And so Denethor fell into corruption power He was unwilling to hand over the kingdom. In fact, what we see in the movie is that Denethor, the steward of Gondor, would eventually take his own life. He would end his years of poor stewardship. He would rather die than give up the power that he thought was his. He would rather die than humble himself before the king. And when he died, this role of a steward passes to his son Faramir. Faramir. He would take his father's place in that long line of stewards, and no sooner did he did, do that than Aragorn, the rightful king, returns. What would Farmer do? He was faced with the same decision. Would he be like his father, or would he be a faithful steward? And Farmer meets Aragorn in the midst of those assembled, and he kneels. And he says, the last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender this office. And then he stood up and spoke in a clear voice, Men of Gondor, hear now the steward of this realm. Behold, one has come to claim the kingship again at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the host and all the people cried yea with one voice and when the king is crowned it is Farmir who leads the cries behold the king Farmir was everything his father was not he was a good and faithful steward who looked forward to the return of his king and was willing and ready to hand over what he had been entrusted to him as its rightful owner Farmir proved his character In history, it was said that Queen Victoria, who reigned over England for 63 years, said that I wish Jesus would come back in my lifetime. I would gladly lay my crown at his feet. We are all stewards. We're stewards of what we have been given. We are not the owners of our homes or our property or our business or anything that we possess. Our life, our home, our children, our possessions, they're all in God's hands. And he is the rightful owner. We're just here as stewards to say, Lord Jesus, what is it that you want me to do today? What is it that you want me to do with the gifts and resources that I have been given? Where do you want me to serve in your kingdom? And our role is to serve him well, faithfully using what we have been given for his glory. You know, I think about that even with this church. It has been my joy and privilege to serve here for 32 years as an under shepherd to the chief shepherd. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. And we need to hold things loosely and gladly lay them at his feet. To whom much is given, much will be required, Jesus says. And to we who have been given great privileges and opportunities to grow and learn and serve, and great resources, have that responsibility to use it well for his kingdom. Jesus calls us to be ready at all times because we don't know that decisive moment when he will come but when that day comes everything will change those opportunities that we have had to serve before his return will be gone books will be open lives will be examined but if we walk with god each day if the pattern of our life is to trust him it's to be a people who are in his word and prayer. It's to be a people who are living in fellowship with God and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are walking in obedience, when those key moments come in life, we'll be ready. And when Jesus Christ comes, we will be ready for his coming with no regrets. Let's make that our aim, to live and walk in, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great trust that you have given to us. Each of us have been given gifts, intelligence, resources, health, and strength. And Father, I pray that we would use those fully in your service. Thank you for the privilege, that is, and thank you for the joy that we'll have on that day when you come. And we see all that you have done for your honor and glory. Help us to be faithful stewards today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen.